This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. You spent over a couple of decades at Aldi. Could you briefly share what exactly you were involved in across the business in that time? Sure. When I first got involved with Aldi, um, starting the business in the UK with its base in, in, in Germany, by that time, it also had foreign operations in Austria and the US. But starting the business in the UK was a uh, was an idea. Uh, first of all, there was uh, some, let's say, internal due diligence to do. And uh, I was recruited on the basis of, uh, we're pretty sure about it, but we, we need to check a few things. Um, and a uh, young executive team was looked for uh, who could, could do that with the idea that um, they would be the same team that would actually manage the business uh, when we got it off the ground. And um, this was 1988, and uh, I joined having spent 10 years previously at uh, Iceland Frozen Foods, a a kind of specialist supermarket uh, focusing on frozen foods. And uh, it it looked a very interesting uh, story uh, when I saw how powerful the the business idea and concept was in, in, in Germany. I was sold actually on the idea almost uh, from from day one um, and didn't look back uh, from that point on. Perhaps I should mention I, I finished up the last uh, 12 years as the CEO of the business. We also opened in Ireland and this became one business unit, uh, UK and Republic of Ireland. Uh, I have to say I, I enjoyed every minute of them. Could you share a little bit about what made it so clear to you early on that this was a very powerful model and and moreover what you saw in the leadership of the business um, that that gave you confidence in what Aldi was doing at the time the business had been running in earnest um i mean it'd been running as a company since uh, uh the early 50s but actually in earnest, it had been running uh, for, for 25 years uh, prior to me starting in the format that, uh, that that it was. And certain things about the business, it was obvious, uh, speaking to people uh, who'd been on that 25 years before I joined uh, Journey, uh, certain things were obviously uh, not likely to change in the future because they hadn't changed in the previous uh, 25 years. And the, the first thing that struck me was a absolutely rock-solid commitment to gaining the trust of the customer, the employees, the suppliers, and business partners. And that almost every rule or method or procedure of the company uh, was built around ensuring that. And uh, to be frank, I hadn't seen something like that uh, before. Um, I mean, okay, looking after your customers is a kind of standard prerequisite for a a good uh, retail company. So that wasn't so difficult to to kind of understand and so different. Um, 
But really looking after your employees, that was something kind of new uh, to me. For example, um, uh, having a mantra that says, let's pay our people as much as we possibly can. Actually, I'd been involved in actually the complete opposite uh, before. Uh, what do we need to pay? Don't pay a cent more um, uh, would would probably be the mantra of uh, most of the other business conversations that I'd, I'd, I'd been in. And then dealing with suppliers in a way where actually you didn't need a contract. Um, I'm not telling you I, I never saw a contract but uh, because that wouldn't be true, but you didn't need it. You know, if you said you were going to do something and uh, the partner supplier said the same and a handshake was uh, was undertaken, that was it. The, uh, the, the contractual side was almost purely administrative in order to uh, satisfy kind of rules and regulations of inter-country or in, inter-company uh, uh, dealings. That was that was new and uh, uh, refreshing, and and, and somehow uh, such such a strong set of ethics uh, that that ran through that you you kind of gained a, a, a very quick um, confidence that if these guys said they were going to do something, they were going to do it. How was this brought to life to you? What um, are there any stories you can share with us as to you mentioned this is this is unusual behavior in in retail? Well, actually, I've got many, many stories that will um, uh, support it. The first thing, of course, is that um, uh, we had to launch on the market uh, by recruiting people at all level you know to run the logistics to uh, uh to run the stores to uh, occupy the uh, uh the commercial um, jobs in the in the headquarters uh, buying product and that kind of thing and uh we did quite a bit of market survey um you know what what were the normal costs and we did our own business plan and the the remarkable thing was that the business plan involved a level of revenue, which was not really uh, justified with uh, with profitability, and uh, what the business understood from the previous two countries that it had entered, uh, it had entered um, Austria in the seventies uh, and uh, uh, the US in the eighties, is that when you come with an idea that you're going to sell your own products. Not not brands, but your own products. Um, in the most part, ninety uh, percent plus would be your your own private labels, and you would try to match the quality of big brands, and you would try to sell around a quarter to a third, depending on the product category, cheaper than those uh, brands. The first people that would oppose the idea was the uh, current incumbents. Because actually, what you were saying was, I'm 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 here. If I'm successful, I'm going to uh, disturb. Would be one word. Ruin would be another word. Uh, your your business. So the current incumbents in the UK uh, were understandably not very uh, enamoured with the idea that Aldi should pitch up on its uh, shores and try and do the same kind of thing that it did in 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 the previous three countries particularly in, in, in Germany, where supermarkets complained there wasn't any room financially 
for them to operate uh, uh, properly because the, the the margins and profits were so minimal based on uh, the fact that uh, Aldi and Aldi lookalikes kind of dominated the uh, uh, the market and they wouldn't want the same thing uh, happening in the UK. So everybody did their best to ignore us. And um, nevertheless, the business insisted when we recruit people. We recruit people with long-term contracts. We recruit people on salaries, which means that we can identify the best, uh, the best talent in the industry. And with this kind of absolute confidence that this will work, it will take time. And what we need is great people who have uh, a solid belief. Now, show me around the world where there are entrepreneurs who were who were so confident in their business uh, uh, longevity that they would do that in a way that was not really affordable. I mean, there was zero chance of making money in the first five years uh, with the, uh, what the business saddled itself with uh, in terms of a team and and, and facilities, etc. But it was always understood, uh, and it and it wasn't too difficult for new people joining to uh, to see the evidence that this was being built for the long term it would work long term and uh, therefore it's a question of just getting down to your job and your work not worrying about how oh, will this company be here in two or three years time I, I i just never encountered anybody who said Wow, the results are not that good uh, um, you know, on the PNL uh, this month or this quarter or, or this year. I wonder if I'll have a job next year. I mean, that that was just never uh, a discussion amongst anybody, and 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 I think I would have known about it uh, um, if it was. I think that's a, a, a very special thing. Well, you're describing a, a perspective on time horizons that is very unusual. How? present was Carl Albrecht in the business when you joined uh, and in this experience you had in your early years with the UK business? Well, when, when I was, uh, when I joined, he was uh, pretty much, uh, I would say, early retirement. Uh, I mean, he was 60. And um, this was uh, his life's work to to get the company to this kind of position. Not just as a business that was actually very, very profitable with uh, zero borrowings and a very, very uh, strong business idea. But um, he was very present culturally. Uh, and I think he took it upon himself uh, in that period between 60 and 70 as he eased back in executive responsibility to uh, just ensure that the culture of the business didn't change, uh, and that it was as strong as ever. And there were two things that I, I, I remember him preaching wherever he had an opportunity, um, and he did it in many different ways. Um, uh, but but the first point was very very clear, and that was turn the penny three times before you part with it. In, in other words, think about what you're spending the company's money on in a way that it's really uh, important to you as, a, as an executive. You can have the authority, you can have the responsibility, but I demand that you think about it very carefully. And there's no cost too small not to concentrate on um, 
is that really the lowest cost of uh, of, of operating? And um, uh, many of his questions, of his uh, discussions in in uh, board or, or conferences, were to illustrate though, though that point. And it wasn't always about uh, not investing. Uh, in fact, often it was the opposite. If you invested a bit more, could you get a lower cost of operation? And that manifested itself in the juxtaposed position of how come we have higher salaries than anybody else in the industry? And uh, at the same time, um, there's constant messaging about uh, being very careful with uh, your spending. And for him, it was always very clear. If you have the best people, you uh, will get the best results. You will have the lowest cost of supervision, and you will have the highest productivity and highest level of uh, innovation in, in cost management. So for him, investing in really good people um, uh, was not a, a, a way to save money, or rather reducing the salaries of, uh, of people was never a way to save money. The way to save money is in expertise, in low levels of supervision, in high levels of uh, autonomy and uh, responsibility, uh, which produce a very productive environment. And uh, interestingly, even though we had the highest salaries in the industry, when you looked at the ratio of cost to sales, it was the lowest. You know, a typical supermarket would run on seven or eight percent of its uh, uh, revenue in in salaries, and we were three. Famously, Jim Senegal used to walk the stores um, and was extremely present at the the front lines at Costco. How did Carl and Theo behave? Well, you know, the, um, very dynamic uh, managers and owners live on on two things. They live on um, uh, how strong culturally they're able to uh, develop their direct reports. And they live on their history. So even without personally experiencing some of the stories that I knew, I understood what it was that was important. If you built a new store and the car park gradient was more than 2%. This was an owner who could spot it before he drove onto the car park. And he would claim, okay, if the customer lets go of their trolley while they're trying to fill their um, their car up, the trolley will roll away if it's more than 2%. And it will either hit another uh, car or it will just roll away so someone will have to go and collect it at the edge of the uh, of the car park. And all of that means that you'll lose trolleys, they'll get rusty, they won't have the same life length, and you'll need labor to collect the trolleys in the store. So for him, 2% maximum car park gradients were a way of saving money. And woe betide anybody who didn't take and pay attention to that and uh, and take care of those kind of things. So there were these myths, uh, and, and and I don't even know whether myths or legends uh, in, in the business, which I didn't actually personally experience, but I knew about them. Uh, um, and, you know, I can tell you 50 stories uh, uh, like that. So clearly, the involvement level 
the understanding of every aspect of the business was Carl Albrecht's uh, forte. And even after he stepped a little bit back from uh, executive responsibility, still those stories were so strong that um, no uh, country manager or uh, operations manager or expansion manager would not understand that rule. And and not only that, but why it was uh, so so important. So uh, uh, it, that's very interesting when when the, the character and the persona is so powerful that the messages live on as though people are telling fables about their time 20 years uh, earlier in the business when they maybe suffered uh, because they, they made a mistake uh, uh, building a car park which had too much of a slope on it. How extreme was the response or the immune system of the organization in your time there to violations of these core principles? It was very strong. It was, and, and and I, by the way, I don't believe it's any different uh, today. There were core cultural rules about taking care of your responsibility towards uh, customers, towards employees, and towards suppliers, which were really very strong. In fact, you knew things which would get you instantly fired, which were nothing to do with financial performance if you just broke those cultural rules. But there were some uh, less obvious rules, which also um, uh, I I remember even some personal uh, story of of Roth. In the early days, um, after we'd matured as a business, so the the UK had been going about 10 years, and it started to become quite profitable. It was predicted on that uh, kind of timescale. And when we became profitable, the the, the ramp up of uh, profitability happened very quickly. You know, we, we crossed the line in terms of being able to uh, cover our costs. And we got to a scale where we could encourage ever better product quality, mixing cases, so the the range widened without uh, costs uh, being uh, changed. And and uh, there was almost an explosion of growth. And by the way, it it happened about the time of the the financial crisis uh, in 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 two thousand, where the whole uh, country was beset with the uh, media telling you how you can save money. And uh, one of the ways was look at these new discount supermarkets. They 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 offer some interesting um, different way of shopping. So this kind of circumstance meant that we were suddenly uh, profitable. And there was one quarter where I was really profitable. I mean, supremely profitable, way over any kind of budgets, way over our business norms, like kind of 30% over uh, the business norms. And the the normal process was you sent your quarterly figures in. um, You had a a call a few days later with the the mothership in uh, in Germany to just talk through. And I thought, wow, this is going to be an exciting one because – uh, we really hammered our profit projections for that quarter. And I was I was actually totally shocked. They were not impressed at all. They were asking questions like, uh, are you too expensive? Why aren't you reinvesting those margins in, in uh, more attractive prices? Why are we suddenly satisfied 
with the this market share and we're allowing now uh potential beginning of stagnation of uh, of of the business and uh i actually wasn't prepared for that you know i thought i was going to get uh, just tons of congratulations <laughs> um but the the, the notion was very clearly uh, um, stuck in my brain after that conversation. Market share growth is much more important than uh, short-term profits and uh, or, or, or uh, profits in general. Um, the whole business has been built for the previous 10 years on ramping up the number of stores, getting more customers, getting more loyalty uh, amongst the customers. And uh, you're suggesting now that we can make more money than other supermarkets. And uh, that's not very sensible, Paul. Uh, please reconsider, which, of course, I did uh, um, uh, pretty rapidly. But it was another clear case of we are aiming to get 1,500 stores, 12% market share, and the opportunity for every consumer to have the opportunity to shop in uh, Aldi, and then the job is done. Don't come with some kind of quarter and boast about uh, high levels of, of profit in that quarter. Just focus on getting through that long-term strategy and, and, and goal. And uh, actually, when I thought about it, I was pretty impressed with that. I, I went back to the whole team and uh, explained, actually, we've not done it right here. We should take uh, some of this profitability and not repeat it, but uh, to invest it in uh, ever lower prices. And that, that was a very good lesson for all the management team, uh, including its leader, me, that we, we're on a journey here. Um, just because we're profitable doesn't mean that we've made it. Now the journey is uh, let's let's get to fifteen hundred stores in the in the in the country, and the guys are still on that journey. By the way, uh, they're much closer to it now um, with a thousand um, one hundred stores when you include uh, uh, Ireland, um, uh, but still it's not done. I recall us having a conversation of a. Uh a story that I'd love to invite you to share here. If you feel comfortable, it was around the lack of willingness on the part of Carl to compromise on the quality of the store estate. I recall us talking about the expansion and, and incredible like-for-like -like sales that you'd be seeing in the mid-2000s and there being opportunities to compromise on store formats and perhaps locations. I wonder if you could share a bit about that experience. Yeah, there were there were kind of two directions that that uh, whole uh, program uh, took. The first is um, again longevity. We installed a sales floor, which was actually quite expensive. Now remember, your whole life is focused on uh, can you do uh, certain parts of the operation cheaper. Can you can you um, uh, achieve a certain result and spend less money doing it? If you can, you should be seriously thinking about that. And the floor that we put into the supermarkets, this floor was uh, kind of legendary because you you needed to get a certain floor tile from uh, from from a certain part of Italy because it was virtually non-porous. That means you could you could spill beetroot juice or red wine on it. It could stay there for 10 minutes uh, and you could just wipe it off 
And you need no preparation on this tile to uh, to be able to do that. It's just a, a, a really, really dense format. It can also take the weight of one kilonewton. That means uh, you can point load a ton on that floor and you can't break it at all. But it's very expensive. And worse than that, it's bloody difficult to lay. I mean, you really need a good floor layer to, to do that. Just the average Joe would make a bad job of it and uh, it wouldn't be even. And you'd hear the trolleys going clunk, clunk, clunk as, it, as they, they hit the edges of the, of the tiles if it wasn't completely flat. So we found other floors which weren't quite as um, didn't quite have the same longevity that were about thirty percent cheaper, and that that was a big part of the construction of the store. And of course, Mr. Albrecht was uh, was keen to listen to the uh, the story. But interestingly, you know, he never got involved in any kind of products. He never got involved in any kind of marketing schemes or or, or anything like that. But if you wanted to alter the floor, which was the same floor everywhere in the world, for him, that was a big deal. And what he wanted to know was, what's the 30-year life cost of this floor, including the cost of cleaning, because you can just whiz over the floor that uh, we, we laid. In 22 minutes, you could do 760 square meters uh, with a floor cleaning machine. Were you still going to do that, or is it going to take 30 minutes? How many times will you have to repair this floor and where's the evidence, et cetera? And um, in the end, he was right. The 30-year cost of this floor was cheaper if you stay with the, this existing floor tile. And uh, uh, for, for him, then, it was just common sense that the store's going to be there for 30 years. We've invested in a, a location. We built the, the store itself. Why do you need to bring yourself problems with the floor, which is, by the way, the most difficult thing to fix in a retail store? When, when the floor's a mess, you need to kind of cordon off areas for, for several days to be able to uh, actually fix it. And you don't really have several days. Uh, you know, this is a, uh, a seven-day-a-week operation, and uh, uh, that just floor just needs to perform for 30 years. And again, it was this absolute solid logic that he had that the idea is build the floor for 30 years and it needs no maintenance. Don't bring me an op, uh, an opportunity for building it for 20 years, but it needs then a lot of maintenance and uh, save some money at the beginning if you're not going to have the lowest cost over 30 years. I, I think what he did is in many of these circumstances, he just picked on one aspect to prove the whole idea of the thinking of uh, Aldi. Long-term, lowest cost, but over the long term, and no shortcuts, which look good at the beginning, but after five years or 10 years, you, you start to pay the price for not uh, putting it uh, uh, the investment in in the first place. Time to time, he invited uh, senior executives to his home for a dinner, and uh, we were all laughing like crazy when we saw the same bloody floor tile in his house. That is incredible. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it, it was a kind of running, you know, funny story that uh, he's so in love with this long term. He even built his own house uh, using <laughs> using those four tiles. <laughs> I also recall a conversation we had around um, the selection of sites and the possibility that you might have might have had, if I recall correctly, of making slight compromises on the quality of the site um, yeah. that would have translated into much faster growth. 
Yeah, for him, the store estate, um, particularly the stores which stood alone, which was uh, the vast majority of the stores uh, in the startup phase uh, or, or the first 20 years, these stores encouraged that you had the perfect productivity because you built them yourself. They were all exactly the same. And the whole building was just ergonomically perfect for, for, for the operation. And in those stores, his attention to detail and his demand for everybody's attention to detail was uh, uh, was absolutely um, uh, non-negotiable. So if you couldn't get the store to the right shape, if you couldn't get the loading bay in the right place, if you couldn't get the entrance to the store uh, in, in the right place because of some particulars about the, st- the site, just forget it. Just go somewhere else. And don't tell me it's the last place in that city that will ever be possible to uh, uh, open a store. Just do it properly. And um, it didn't take very long before everybody in the company, not just me or uh, you know all my colleagues uh, in other countries, understood these kind of things are non-negotiable for the for the business. It needs to be perfect, or just forget it and go somewhere else. What else? We've spoken about this relentless focus on being the lowest cost operator, um, on on a priority on or managing this paradox of yes, market share really matters, but not if it comes at the expense of a of a blowout and the cost structure that would undermine long term competitiveness. What else for him was was non negotiable that would be uncommon in retail? This culture is easier to absorb and to perpetuate when you find people of a certain type and at a certain stage in their career, and you put those people through the same initiation process to bring them into their their final roles. So one of the unique things about Aldi, and it's still unique today, um, I still enjoy looking at the job ads of uh, competitors uh, in, in, in different markets, but, but you know, I'm, I'm still uh, kind of related to the UK. Um, it's not possible to join Aldi today in any kind of senior management uh, position unless you start in a junior management position and you learn the business from the shop floor up. And this was another part of the Aldi culture. So what I guarantee you today, if you go and meet somebody um, who's who's my age, uh, 65 years old uh, in the Aldi organization, I guarantee you they've got between 35 and 40 years experience with uh, with the business. There's nobody who started with the business in any kind of management role, who started age 40 or age 45. Um, they Pretty much everybody joins somewhere not too long after uh, their university uh, degree and joins the business in a trainee role that, um, first of all, introduces them to the business and then they actually start their career by running a group of uh, Aldi stores. From then, they can go into any kind of direction, expansion, buying, IT, operations itself, uh, logistics, 
it doesn't matter where they end up. They're going to spend those first three to four years operating the the, the business uh, in one store and then very quickly in a, in, a, in a group of stores. That's unusual because that is really long-term. You know, you're, you're, you're recruiting your next regional manager, uh, regional director running 100 stores and having a whole geographical uh, area of the country, having your own warehouse, um, uh, your own expansion uh, team and and building a business in, in a certain geography. You're recruiting him or her 15 years earlier, um, uh, age I don't know, 25, 26, 27, and growing them through the business as opposed to recruiting them, uh, having come and done that job for Lidl or for Tesco or or, or, or some other uh, company. And when you start the, uh, a new country, of course, that's very difficult to do. So um, what's possible now is that you can bring from the Aldi world a whole bunch of people who started 15 years ago and say, for the next two years, we would like you to go to a new country. We would like you to help set up and grow these people uh, through our normal process. And uh, this is an amazing machine for making sure all that culture that we are kind of talking about uh, today is protected. There is some of it written down, by the way, but in the main, nobody goes to a, a kind of a manual for these cultural things. They are just there because Everywhere you look, left, right, center, there's examples of it. And, and that's when you know a culture is strong. Uh, it's, it's even self-cleaning. When somebody comes up with a so-called new idea, but it's opposed to the culture, you get a 100 peers telling you, no, we can't do that. That would affect our ethics with a supplier, or that would not be fair on the employee, or that's not long-term. That We'll save money for the first five years, but look, um, uh, we, we would spend more money in 10 years' time. That's not your boss telling you that. That's your peers telling you that. Sometimes it's even your subordinates telling you that. That's not possible. Actually, it means that innovation is quite hard to do because there are, of course, always some good ideas. Um, uh, but but the strength of the of the culture protects so many good things. It's worth to have that challenge to to get anything new um, accepted uh, in, in in the business. How did the company look at incentive plans and compensation throughout your tenure in in aligning or as a tool to align behavior with these values? That's a very interesting story because there, there are a lot of books written and there's a lot of best practice which talks about um, how you organize fixed salaries and how you organize incentives uh, to uh, align managers uh, with, with the company goals. I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm going to shock you because I don't think we've ever talked about this before, but there were no, across my 23 years, there were no, I mean, zero incentives uh, uh, schemes. Um, bar one, but uh, I need to explain that to you. So for, for managers, it was a very good salary that was uh, actually outstanding at the early stages of your career, it flattened out as you went to become more and more senior. 
And um, uh, it was never uncompetitive, but the gap between the uh, market for someone who was, let's say, 25 years in the uh, in the industry and the Aldi salary was 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 much smaller after 25 years than it was at the beginning. And there was good sense in that. If you want the very best people, you need to offer the very best package at the beginning. Uh, once you've got them, then your job is to uh, make sure that their careers are exciting, make sure that their careers are, are really um, uh, motivating, um, and to give them the opportunity to really realize their uh, potential. Once you've done that, I have to say most of my colleagues um, who had similar kind of uh, experience to me, 20, 30 years uh, plus, they were motivated by the uh, the opportunity to work in a style that they felt really personally comfortable with because they not only identified with the culture but they 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 actually sold that culture to new new people and 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 then your your level of engagement is uh, on, a, on a on a very high level if you're you're actually selling it to yourself and it wasn't so much about um, uh, am I earning more than I would do in any other position, although I never saw a circumstance where somebody would 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 have said, actually, you know what, if I, I switched to company Y, I would earn 20% more or, or whatever. So, But you get my point. It, you know, the, 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 the gap flattened out uh, after a time. The um, incentive came from knowing that you are – uh, you're doing a job which um, it, it is to the best of your ability. It fits within the culture. And there was a lot of feedback to keep this culture very understood. There were a lot of uh, either one-on-one -on -one teachings with uh, your boss, or there were a lot of uh, time spent on conferences for people of the same level within the organization to share best practices, to share stories of uh, successes or, or failures, which just seem to always end up in consolidation of, uh, of, of the culture. So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very quickly moving from financial compensation to almost, I would say, emotional uh, compensation, but on uh, with a with a salary that everybody was uh, considered to be very fair. Another feature of it was there was a lot of consistency. For example, um, when the country managers uh, understood their pay increase on an annual basis, we all got told in a group. There was no one-on-one -on -one, uh, discussion that said, uh, okay, you, Paul, you, you can have an extra uh, $3,000 or, or whatever. It was all done in a group. So what you understood was you didn't need to kind of sneakily find out, I wonder what they pay Jim in the US or Joe in uh, Australia or whatever. You knew. Uh, and by the way, you knew all the salaries of the people junior to you. You didn't know the salaries of the people senior to you, out of kind of respect, but you knew all the salaries of your peer group and uh, those uh, underneath you. Um, and I never found once that somehow reduced the motivation of uh, somebody. But salaries were very fair. They were very competitive. And uh, you'd grown up in an environment where you you knew, especially in the early days, 
you probably made 30 or 40% more than your peers in other countries, uh, in other companies uh, did. In the absence of an actual equity stake in the business, where did your sense of ownership come from? Because it does, in listening to you, it does seem like there was and is a, a palpable sense of ownership for the outcomes that you were involved in at the business. Yeah. This, um, first of all, the people who were progressed right to the most senior levels in the company were those who um, enjoyed this uh, responsibility, not only for producing results, but for building teams and, uh, and, and, and building businesses in the way that Aldi wanted. So, so uh, there was a kind of pre-selection, if you like, um, uh, without you even realizing it until you look back, uh, that um, that was a quality that was uh, prized by those who were uh, choosing um, individuals that uh, progressed in the business. But I think um, that was strongly backed up by the idea that the uh, that there's something called the Aldi management system. It's it's a kind of um, rule book on uh, how you must treat people and how you should be expected to be treated yourself uh, in in leadership terms. And and one of the core principles of this Aldi management system was never give responsibility without giving an appropriate authority so that there's no chance that you could blame any lack of success on someone interfering or some kind of bureaucratic rule that that meant I'd, I'd like to do X, I'm responsible for it, but I don't have the authority to change things. And um, uh, when you have that, when you have the complete responsibility to do what you like, but you're controlled in your own mind by what you know to be a very strong culture, which you identify with uh, personally, you you know you would subscribe to that culture naturally, uh, um, even if it wasn't uh, imposed upon you. Then what you get is you get a bunch of people who behave like uh, this is my part of the business, and uh, I have to take care of it. And I have to make sure that everybody who's working for me and with me um, also understands these uh, rules. So it's, it's it's an incredibly clever way of uh, motivating um, leaders from within, and um, it's very powerful uh, because when, when you work with for somebody who's got this strong sense of. Uh, ethically uh, correct ways of doing things, it's actually hard to say if you're a normal person, you know what, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I, I think I can screw him or I, I think I can get away with uh, something here. Um, and uh, uh, the minute you found somebody who was even thinking that way, you, you, you start to come to the conclusion, perhaps that's not the right person for my team or certainly not the right person that I could trust with that level of uh, authority uh, in, in the future. So, you know, self-cleansing comes in uh, uh, once again. The culture you've described, if we look at what would typically be considered the hard choices in retail? How do you treat your suppliers? How do you manage margins? How do you, um, you know, do you translate the benefits of scale back to the customer? Do you share those benefits with them as you get bigger? 
it doesn't sound like it was particularly hard within the Aldi context to make those choices. You know, you're right. Um, everything seemed to uh, be very easy to decide in a kind of, um, uh, let's call it an Aldi logic. But the truth is that there were some times when you um, you had to make some kind of hard choices. You know, when you feel responsible for a uh, for a business, um, uh, you you often have uh, two or three ways to to tackle a problem. Uh, some examples. One thing that became very obvious, um, uh, and and I think it was even more obvious in the UK, which was a very strong uh, and 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 very rich and and successful retail supermarket industry with with four top players who were considered amongst the best in the world at producing uh, a very good result for their customers, a very good result for their shareholders, and and by any kind of benchmark practices, uh, a high level of profitability for the investment that was made. You know, that was the 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 starting point for 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 Aldi coming into the industry. That's you know what uh, the business faced, and um, what became obvious because there was so much uh, uh, legitimate but nevertheless tough uh, practices to to try to keep Aldi out of the market and 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 having that very nice uh, profitable party disturbed um, that you began to really value the private label suppliers that you uh, had in a way that you would it would be kind of suicidal to uh, to not organize the relationship in a way that was kind of win-win for for both sides so what you had was a situation where you built from the the, the beginning uh, a relationship with small manufacturers who understood the growth story and the growth uh, plans and were prepared to grow with you. Sometimes we used a little bit of our own money to help them. You know, we made investments uh, in those uh, production factories uh, to enlarge them or uh, put more sophisticated plant in. Sometimes we wrote contracts which were good enough for the business to take to the bank and say, look, I, I have this long-term contract, um, providing I don't muck it up, I, you know, I got this business in the bag for the next five years and look at their track record, um, lend us the money to uh, extend the factory um, uh, or uh, improve the plant. So th- these were the kind of um, uh, tactics that we, we used to build up our supply base. Uh, and to have uh, branded quality product um, at, at uh, lower prices because of the the, the method and the assurability of the um, uh, of, of the business relationship. Now, if somebody came in and said, "I can do that, and I can do it for ten percent less," and you know, maybe one day I need more than one supplier, you have to think very carefully about do I do that you know because this guy's been with me for the last 10 years he's uh, everything I've asked of that supplier he's done and uh, now I have the opportunity to maybe take 25% of that business away and and divide it amongst uh, two 
And I'm probably going to need to do that at some stage because uh, just out of um, supply security, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. And you've already explained that to the uh, uh, the supplier, but it wasn't now. <laughs> and there's the, the opportunity stares you there and then. And you have to make the decision, what do I do now? Um, do I do I retract and, and, and go back on, on a kind of promise that I uh, made and, and risk that the, um, the supplier who's been with me for the last 10 years loses a bit of faith that, I, you know, if I can retract that, I can retract uh, other things. Uh, and at the same time, you know, uh, this opportunity needed to come anyway. It just it just come three years too early. Uh, and these were hard choices, uh, uh, to, to be honest, because uh, uh, Lidl is all also there. And uh, if you don't make the deal, you know where the next address is going to be for that uh, manufacturer. Um, and How did the culture help you make those choices? Yeah, it did. It where did, did. Who did you turn to? Um, uh, well, um, uh, when it was really a tough uh, choice, um, there was an opportunity to to talk to the guys in Germany and say, look, this is how I see things. This is what I think I should do. Um, these are all the facts. Do, do you support this? Um, and uh, generally, um, uh, always sticking to our promises was the way uh, forward. Uh, sometimes um, if we, I wouldn't say broke a promise, but if we went down a slightly different path, we made sure that there was some other compensation which was really fair and reasonable and, and perhaps a little bit un, unexpected on the part of the supplier uh, to, to compensate that. So what, what I'm telling you is it's not possible to say that there were no um, uh, opportunity. You know, everything was just crystal clear um, and uh, uh, easy to do um, because not only did you have Lidl breathing down our neck, and still is the case, um, but um, there was also Netto that uh, at the time was, which was wanting to be a, a kind of a, a third uh, leg of the of the discount scene in in, um, uh, in the UK, and all the supermarkets. Uh, despite what they say, uh, were also very interested in our business model and were thinking about, okay, how can we uh, either copy some of that or um, uh, do something similar ourselves? So all those suppliers who uh, potentially might have been able to fall out with us uh, could have easily been then uh, potential suppliers for uh, the, uh, the big four who ramped up their own private label. Uh, programs, you know, and we saw Tesco try to develop a kind of um, uh, Aldi Me Too uh, type of uh, 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 operation. But before that, they were they were experimenting in categories with uh, with with products, and and you don't want to just give your competitors uh, uh, a, a lifeline to make that easier. So it it was complex uh, to be honest, but the guiding principle was always. Um, if you've got a if you've got a contract um, or a handshake, and you've said, okay, I will not do this. Uh, generally, we well, actually exclusively, we never compromise that. <laughs>